Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. And welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, the board gaming podcast with more Macross and home improvement content than any other board gaming podcast. We're going to mix things up and talk primarily about games this week, and I'm going to do so with my co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Great, Mark. How are you this week? I'm very well, thank you. And we are going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about our feature game, which is Autobahn. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, I played a couple of light games that were very interesting. One that was on Board Game Arena called Boop and or Pounce. Boop and or Pounce. Yes. It's cats jumping on a bed. It's like an abs- It's very abstract. <laughs> so it's a, it's a grid and you're putting on these cute little kittens at first. Oh, I've seen that. It's adorable. It is adorable. And, and you, and the, when the cat jumps beside, jumps on the bed, all cats that are around it get pushed. Of course, unless they're being blocked by another cat. So the object is to get three of your kittens in a row and then they turn into cats but of course, then are pulled off the board, and then you have to try to get three of your cats in a row, tic-tac-toe style, you know, diagonally straight across. And there's all sorts of being pushed around and pushed off the bed and all sorts of fun stuff. It's great. Really, really good. Con- surprisingly good. Is it as adorable on Board Game Arena as it is in the... It uh, is. It's because the pictures of the components are just absolutely... Just very cute. Very adorable. Yes. This is designed by Scott Bradley and put out by Smirk and Laughter Games. And you can check it out, like I said, on Board Game Arena. The other one was Bag of Chips. This is designed by Matthew Albert and Theo Rivera. And it's put out by Mixlore. And it's sort of a gambling type game, I guess you could say. I think you start with six cards. And then there's a sort of menu of cards at the front. You're going to draw five chips out onto the board. And uh, there are all sorts of, you know, salt and vinegar. I think there's like six different kinds of chips. And then you have, like I said, a hand of six. And there are all sorts of... Uh, what's going to be at the end of the game, the whole sort of array of, of chips that are going to be out. Like, are you going to be able to have two of each or one of each or are all the purples going to get out? Because they're all, it's a different mix. There's only like four purples and four yellows and six and seven. So you're sort of gambling on what's going to happen because after the first round, you have to discard two cards and then more chips are brought out. Then you have to discard one card. Constantly then... winnowing down the available bets you can make as the information increases. Exactly. And the last one, you're actually putting one into the negative slot. So if it actually comes true, those are going to be negative points. And then your last two. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it is. Because you have to hold on to a card, possibly hoping that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty neat. Yeah. Usually you're trying to hope on for all positive. And then out of the three, it's like, well, this is the one that. That failed to manifest. Most likely right. might fail. <laughs> Hopefully will fail. And then that'll be your negative one. Or you could do it like you said, just hold on to one that you know for sure is not going to bite you at the end. So bag of chips, very fast, very simple to teach, would play anytime. Definitely check it out. 
got to play a couple of games that we have reviewed in the past and talked a lot about, one of them being Kinkopolis. The only amendment that I would offer, and this is something I neglected to mention when we reviewed it a few weeks ago, and that is that despite the fact that it is a very simple game, and in that sense, it's kind of easy to teach. In another sense, it's not easy to teach. I was reminded of this teaching the game again, although, well, Sidewinder did the initial rules explanation, but then I, I, I remembered about halfway through how difficult it can be to teach Gankopolis because you only get to do one of three things, but it usually takes about three or four rounds for people to really latch onto what's going on. It's one of those games where, despite the relatively light rule set and the fact that about halfway through your first game, everyone's just going to be humming along with no difficulty whatsoever. For the first few rounds, even experienced gamers might be like, wait, what? what?" It's like, you can only do one of three things. Just do one of the three things. But how does the car... It's like, it's all good. It's all good. Just do one of the three things. Like, uh, all right. So uh, this was particularly pronounced because we had somebody there who was almost paralyzed by indecision uh, on on the face of the initial options. So just a minor amendment. Simple game. On the on one hand, it's easy to teach, but it does require hand-holding during the early rounds. Yeah, easy to teach. It just does things so differently, I think, than other games. Just the oh, fact how, yeah. it, how it introduces more information and as the tiles come out, more well, cards are added. And then... In a way, really, it was ahead of its time, right? Because now almost every medium-to-medium-heavy Euro game is a combination of tableau building and some drafting and maybe there might be tiling somewhere else, blah, blah, blah. But Kinkopolis has the mixture of drafting, tiling, and tableau building, and yet is marvelously lighter than a lot of those other games. And those three systems are integrated and interconnected in a much more satisfying and clean way. And so in a way, it's one of those disarmingly simple games, and its simplicity in point of fact sometimes makes it harder to teach or at least internalize. But again, three, four rounds into the game, everyone's going to be fine. That's been my experience anyway. So that's my uh, minor uh, footnote to uh, the playing and, and teaching of Ginkopolis, but absolutely wonderful, wonderful design. Also played another game of Street Masters, this time specifically with the Aftershock expansion. And again, this is sort of a, a, a minor addendum to what I commented last time. Last time we played primarily with the Twin Tigers expansion, which is kind of the nadir of the male gaze art style that has sometimes infected Street Masters. This time, quite by accident, we ended up with a team of four women, all of four different ethnic backgrounds, none of whom had, at least to my eyes, any sort of male gaze problematic art style. And that's great. And it is a testament to the diversity of the cast and especially how much the Sadler brothers really redirected the art style after the first wave of expansions because Aftershock was where all these characters came from. I had a crowbar. Walker had a crowbar and was lodging crowbars and improvised bombs. You had a you had a comment actually on your character after having played her for the first time. I just said I wouldn't play her again only because I thought she was so overpowered. She was very strong. <laughs> I had never played her before. This is the character Lita, who, for what it's worth, was also a real person insertion into the game. Uh, the art style for the real person insertions in Street Masters is pretty well done. It's not ob- objectionable or, or painfully obvious the way it's done in a lot of other Kickstarter designs. And I've never, as I said, I've never played as Lita, but I definitely, reading through her cards, was thinking she's going to be very strong. <laughs> and sure enough, she was. She definitely was. So that was another great experience with Street Masters. Good time had by all. Street Masters Aftershock, designed by Adam Sadler and Brady Sadler and Blacklist Games. Shame what's happened to Blacklist Games. They're never getting any more of my money, ever at all, except maybe for retail. But even then, I'm going to want some witnesses and a notary before I give over any money. Mark and I got to play Equinox. This is designed by an upcoming new designer, Reiner Knizia. Sorry, what was that? Uh, never heard the name. Never heard of him? Yeah. He's he's good. Check out. He's got okay. some good games. Okay. He's got this Tai-T 
Tigurirus and Ufudis. It's a great game. Um, this is published by Plan B Games. It was out before as Coliseum. Kind of. Uh, well, no. So it was originally published in 96 as Grand National Derby without any special powers. It was then republished by Avalon Hill, of all people, the original Avalon Hill, as Titan the Arena. It was a Titan-themed card game in 97. Like and Avalon Hill, like, themed off of their Titan Yeah, like themed the off ring, their Titan. The, the Ring Around the Rosie game? Yes, gotcha. the Roll and Move, Recruit, Endless Titan Battle. Gotcha. Then it was published by Fantasy Flight Games in 2004 as, as Colossal Arena. That is how most people know it. And actually, it was in those designs where the special powers were introduced. It's unclear the extent to which Knizia had input on the original wave of special powers. Some of the Fantasy Flight powers are uh, <coughs> garbage, but the original Avalon Hill ones are pretty good. And then, also for what it's worth, I will just mention, for historical completeness, the Dark Sheep of the family, the sci-fi spinoff called uh, Galaxy the Dark Ages that was published in 2000. I've never played it, and I have also never read a single positive note about it. <laughs> Apparently it changed the rules rather considerably and made things very random. So this one is Equinox. It's all sorts of forest spirits. And what these sort of, what this arena does is they have this large array, this large row of all sorts of different creatures. And people are playing cards to each lane, trying to, as soon as the lane completes, trying to make sure the creatures that you want to win aren't the lowest because the lowest creatures are kicked out of the fight and then you go down to the next rung and you keep going this until you get to the bottom if you're like the the lead sort of better on a particular lane then you get to use the special powers of that creature very interesting plays very quickly lots of different abilities and special powers going off nice betting game equinox I really like Equinox. I, I really like Colossal Arena. I haven't had a lot of time with the new special powers in Equinox, and that's to be expected because, despite the fact that a fair amount of the rule set is about how the special powers work, they don't trigger all that much as a general rule. That sort of asymmetry might bother me more if the core card play weren't so clean, and were it not for the case that a correct application of special powers can be monstrously determinative, no pun intended. So it's a bit like, this is a bit of a stretch, but it's a bit like Guards of Atlantis 2. There are all these special abilities, and very often they fail to trigger, but when they do, it tends to be very, very consequential. And I've been playing uh, Colossal Arena for quite some time since it was originally published. I, I really enjoy it. It has that classic Knizia card game feel of no card being worthless. The, you want the low cards, because the low cards are a great way to kneecap the creatures that you don't want to survive because anybody can play to any creature. You don't have to be betting on a given creature to play to it, and indeed very often you won't be able to. And at the same token, it has that classic Knizia card game feel of, I wish I could pass, because you have to commit somewhere. And every time you play to a new creature, you're accelerating the end of the round. Sometimes you want to be able to just play on top of an existing creature, but maybe it's the high card and you don't want to play it out too early because then someone will play a low card on top of it and you have no ability to make it high again, etc., etc. Lots of subtle dynamics about timing with respect to card play in Equinox or indeed any of these versions. I've been a great, great fan of, of the game. It's probably one of my favorite betting games. In fact, all my favorite betting games are Reiner Knizia games, unsurprisingly. And I, I've never played the, the, the Grand National Derby version, the one without any special powers. I'd be vaguely curious, but I do like overall the, the additional bit of texture with special powers, even though some of them aren't very good. And I was glad to try the new Equinox version. The spirits are a little weird. They don't have the same traction uh, to me as the sort of stock fantasy creatures that you have in either Titan or Colossal Arena. And 
Uh, yeah, not the character, not someone you can get behind and or cheer well, for type thing. They had they had a lot of character, but it's just that the power, the connection between the different powers oh, yes. and the different uh, abil- uh, 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 spirits. For example, they they did one creature they just lifted straight off, which was the Etten. The Etten is in common in all versions with powers, take the Arena and Colossal Arena and Equinox. The Etten special power is take another turn. Very straightforward, two at a giant kind of makes sense. There's the Gorgon, for example, who kind of turns someone to stone, forcing them to play their next turn with only half of their hand at random. I don't know what the name of the spirit was that did that in Equinox. I can't remember. It was probably cute. It was probably well drawn, but I don't like Gorgon. Turns to stone. Got it. Understood there. I can remember that one, despite the fact that I haven't played that edition in years. Meanwhile, Equinox, having played last week, I can't... I remember the bear was strong. Bear strong. Understand. Big bear, bear bet on bear, bet on bear. But other than that, I was constantly having to check. Okay, so this is the mouse riding on the back of a fox or something. Okay, this is the what. Very charming artwork, but didn't have the same connection to the the mechanisms that I felt in Titan the Arena or Colossal Arena. Lovely cards, though. Great, large, yeah. almost tarot style. Just so. Very colorful edition. I was a bit disappointed to learn, though. I had assumed such as my ignorance, because I don't consume board game podcasts, for example, that I knew that there were two different versions of Equinox. I had assumed that they had different power sets. But no, they're both perfectly equivalent. They just have different cover art. And then you had a discussion about how a number of other games did that. Mostly the Abyss. Is the the Abyss one. had a whole bunch of different versions. Yeah, I, I don't know why publishers do this. Maybe they hope they're just going to get more, more shelf frontage if... A, a store picks up copies of each. Collect the whole set. Something like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on the downside, they're perfectly equivalent to do the thing that I don't necessarily like. On the upside, each copy of Equinox has a lot of different creatures. So there's that. That was Equinox by Renner Knizia, published by Plan B Games. Played another game of Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall is an area majority game about New York politics in the late 19th century. Designed by Doug Eckhart, initially published by IDW Games in 2007. Just pause a second. You lost half the people. Just wait till they trick them to come back. All right, go. (sighs) (laughs) So Tammany Hall is a very, very, very simple area majority game where on your turn you either place two of your own pieces, which will participate in area majority scoring, or you place one piece and you place what's called an immigrant cube. A lot of the game is about the waves of immigration that took place in New York City in the latter half of the 19th century. And so you have the Irish, English, German, and Italian populations represented. And that is the aspect that is the most interesting and also the area where it makes me dissatisfied with the game personally. It's a very clever design, but it's one that I often have a bit of apprehension towards because this is how it works. You can, when the elections come around, supplement your your presence through a blind bid of the influence you have in the various immigrant groups that are represented in that ward. If there are Italians in the ward, you can use your Italian influence. If there are no Italians in the ward, you can't. So, the, the board play of jockeying to make sure that the right immigrant presences are in the right places, that part's great. It's dovetailed on top of the board position. I really like that part. But when it comes time to do an election, you're sitting down thinking, okay, well, I've got three orange discs for the Germans. I've got two English discs, and I've got five Italian discs. Okay, that's got to last me through the next 20 elections. I look over at my appointment uh, at my opponent. They've got twice as many discs as I have. So I was like, okay, they can beat me in any one single fight, but they can't beat me in all the fights, Probably. 
So when do I fight? When do I put in the big push of discs? Do I wait and then gnash my teeth in frustration because my opponent won the district by only bidding a single disc from their stockpile, guaranteeing that they will then be able to win all the fights? Do I wail in frustration at all of my other opponents? Don't help me out by making them spend any resources to win any of their fights? These are things that are conceptually fascinating to me, but in practice I don't find particularly interesting. Specifically, that kind of blind bidding. Looking over and realizing, okay, I've got to go the distance with this amount of resources and say, am I, am I going to pick the right time to push? Am I not going to... And I I just, I honestly, I find it unsatisfying. When I win, whether I lose, I like the blind bidding aspects more when it's uh, part of an overall more robust design. So, for example, I don't mind the blind bidding so much in modern art because it's just one way that the bid happens and it's colored by some notion of the economy. I have some notion about what the painting is worth. And I can influence my notion of the bid, and so you don't see bids all over the place. But if every painting were actually a series of seven bids, and the painting goes to whoever wins four out of those seven bids, and it was all blind biddings, then I think my brain would crack wide open, and I wouldn't be that keen on it. Yeah, undaunted, it's just, you know, just for the initiative. and Which is incredibly consequential, but by the same token, you can decide not to focus on that, and yeah, uh, exactly. So... I'm really fascinated by the way Tammany Hall handles blind bidding. I think it's really interesting. It's just not one that I enjoy playing quite so much. Now, I enjoy it. I, I'm perfectly happy to play Tammany Hall. But as far as area-majority games go, which is one of my favorite genres of Euros, it is not one of my preferred instances. I will also note, for what little it is worth, and I don't know how many other people will have this problem, and I will not mention who did this, but someone at the table took the opportunity to make a number of very, very lazy ethnic jokes about various populations that they had influence in, and even after a repeated pushback, they kept making very sloppy stereotypes about very... It's like, uh, and that part also sat my enjoyment of, of Tammany Hall. I kept trying to make them stop, but they wouldn't. They're a good person. They're decent. They just could not figure out how to get past this. So, so as a consequence, I'm never going to play Tammany Hall with them again. <laughs> that's, for, that's for certain. <laughs> anyway, uh, Tammany Hall, as I say, fascinating area majority game, extremely clean design, has a good sense of history, but it relies a lot on high stakes blind bidding and serialized blind bidding, which are two kinds of blind bidding that I don't very much ap- appreciate. That's Tammany Hall by Doug Eckhart, originally published by IDW Games in 2007. I streamed Marvel United this week. And this is a game by Eric Lang and Andrea Caravestio. And this is put out by Simon Games. And it's a superhero game. I think you might have clued into that with the, the Marvel tag. And it's sort of like... Do I you have any of the stretch goals? No. Oh, okay. Just base that, game. That's too bad. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Um, It's very much like Sentinels of the Multiverse Light. You have an like, action phase and you... And it's it's similar. It gives you the same feel due to the fact that there's such an array of, of heroes to choose from and a large array of villains to choose from. And you even have all sorts of different uh, locations and they also they have a very minor special ability. But like I said, it is the light version. Yes, because one of your repeated complaints and indeed a frequent complaint that I've seen from other people is that the heroes don't feel sufficiently differentiated because so many of their decks are so much of the deck is equivalent to every other hero. But they have the pictures of the hero on the card, so <laughs> you're good to go. <laughs> well, just contrast – so you mentioned Sentinels. Contrast that to Sentinels, where each deck plays very, very differently. And on top of that, they've done a very good job of giving personality to each of the characters, despite the fact that it's all kayfabe, made-up, comics canon. They all have different quotes and 
different different pictures of the character with other characters from the the fake canon in the yeah. art for each card. Yeah, no, I'm not going to defend one against the other. I, I don't know why I'm I like... trying to contextualize. Yeah, I know. I, I don't know why I like Marvel United because you have very limited choice. You have three cards to choose from and they have a very, you know, three different symbols. You're either punching, moving, or or saving civilians. And, and it's usually the obvious choice of what to do. It's like, okay, well, this card's filled up, so we got to make, you know, reduce that or it's, you know, boss punching time. There are some <laughs> interesting trade-offs where... There are three goals you have to set, like you have to fill the card of civilians, fill cards of thugs, and fill cards of uh, the the bad areas around the map, say. And when you complete the second one, that's when the villain starts to take their turns more often. So you sort of want to complete the first two at the same time. So that's an interesting sort of thing to try to pull off. All the bosses have different ways they you know, interact with the game, which is kind of interesting sometimes. Yeah, the bosses seem to have more personality than the heroes, which is fine, but it's an interesting choice. Yeah, and Rhino was kind of, they seem to have dialed that one in. We played Rhino before the stream just to try out, and all of his, you know, uh, cards that go out in all the locations, there was, of the six cards, there was only two, three of one card and three of another card. <laughs> he had one cool mechanic where he you know, run around the map until he hit a hero. And with only two players, we accidentally ended up on the same map. So you like ran around the whole board and, and, and launched us into nowhere's land. But during the stream, we got beat up a couple times by the green goblin. And then we played Loki and finally won. It was, it was, like I said, I don't ha- know. Having failed against a human with mental health problems, you then decided to dial up to a Norse God and had more success. Just so. And the Green Green Goblin was uh, interesting as well, because he doesn't put out any of his tactics cards on the locations at the beginning, and he goes around and and starts spreading them out whenever, if he ever fills all of them, then you lose. I see. So, like we said, it's interesting how they, you know, change up the rules with all the different villains. Yeah, honestly, if the heroes had half as much personality as the villains, I'd probably have more enthusiasm for Marvel United as it is. I don't dislike the game. It was okay the the few times I played, and I suspect that I'd have... Uh, much more enthusiasm if I had enthusiasm for any of the characters represented. So it's a shame you don't have any of the stretch goals, even though it sounds like you were playing with them. I don't think so. What, you don't think so? I think it comes with... Doesn't it come with, like, seven boxes? I <laughs> well, there are a lot more than than the seven. That's for oh, sure heaven, now. Yes. So now. We, we commented on Pledge of Indifference that, I mean, Eric Lang wanted to see, he thought it was sort of an experiment, is can there be a sort of family weight lifestyle game? with the same degree of excess and opulence that you see in a game like Massive Darkness or a lot of other Simon stuff or Zombicide, but that's meant to be a family weight cooperative game. So that degree of a million minis. Apparently the market has spoken and the market's response is yes. I was going to say success. Yes. Because <laughs> there's now a billion. You pick a hero, you enjoy. They'll have it. You like a villain? I'm sure it's already been done. Marvel United, if you have any interest in superhero games... It would be a good starting off point. Play the game of Yellow and Yangtze. This is by the uh, same aforementioned Reiner Knizia, published by Grail Games in 2018. It's going to be republished soon by Phalanx under the title Huang, with unnecessary miniatures that seem to make the game less usable. I am once again reminded that I, I don't, I really don't understand why some people prefer Yellow and Yangtze to Tigers and Euphrates. And this isn't just the fact that I think that Tigers and Euphrates is the best game ever made. It's that Yellow and Yangtze is much, much less dynamic and much, much more about building pagodas. You can build a pagoda on the second turn. And 
if you do so, it, also in the third, also in the fourth, <laughs> and it's more difficult to wrest pagodas from you because one of the great interesting dynamics of monuments, these are the things, that, both pagodas and monuments are the things that churn out points on a regular basis and therefore are very hotly contested. In Tigers and Euphrates, building a monument is a risk because you're making yourself vulnerable in doing so. It's also harder to do just in terms of needing the right tiles to do so. And every game of Yellow and Yanks I've ever played has always come down to pagoda control. It always happens each and every time, which is kind of okay, but in Tigers and Euphrates, games can feel radically different one to the next, and things go back and forth in terms of control. Anyhow, I find Yellow and Yangtze a much more static, much more procedural affair. It's still very satisfying. I do enjoy Reiner Knizia tiling games, but I just do not understand why some people prefer this version. I've heard their claims. Some people claim it's more dynamic. I don't understand what they're talking about. It's, it's also got more rules grit insofar as there are more uses for tiles and the way that wars work are a little bit less intuitive as far as I'm concerned. Still very enjoyable, very physically attractive game, still easy to get to the table, and it's less conceptually daunting than Tigers and Euphrates, at least. It may be, uh, have a little bit more rules grit, but the map isn't going to be changing as much, and therefore you don't need as much spatial imagination to understand the consequences of your actions. But that, in turn, makes the game less dynamic. Anyway, I enjoy Yellow and Yangtze, but it is a shame that it is being reprinted and not Tigers and Euphrates. Tigers and Euphrates should be back in print. Agreed. Mark, you and I got to play a game called Bot Factory. This is designed by Vidal Cerda and Juan Cuntela Martins. Perfect. This is put out by Eagle Griffin Games, and it's been said that it is uh, Kanban light. And said I, by you, even. I, I think it is true, because very much in Kanban, you get your blueprint of the car you want to make. You go get the parts. You build your car. It has Vidal's wife going through, making making life very difficult for you. Sandra. Sandra. And very much in this game, the very the hook of of this mechanism is the worker placement. Everyone sort of puts out their workers in turn order, and then once they're all out, then you start taking actions from left to right, and then you get to then you have to move on the next turn, have to move those workers from left to right to a different location. And it has this very interesting dynamic, you know, worker selection, having forcing you to take suboptimal turns, or you know, making sure you go first next turn. I think it's very interesting. What did you think, Mark? I thought it was exceptionally dry. This was order fulfillment stripped down almost to its naked essentials. And not, I think, in a pleasing way. Sometimes a game becomes minimalistic. And that simple minimalism, for example, a simple minimalism game that's about order fulfillment, for example, could be whale riders. And just that it ends up grabbing you by virtue of how straightforward and intuitive everything is. Bot Factor, I just felt, was very, very, very dull. You have a limited number of blueprints that you can have available at any given time, and then you're at the whim of a number of random bot components, or you can, yes, there's a more expensive way to get the, the universal components. And yeah, there's some clever elements about timing. Most of most of the actual dyna dynamism and clever gameplay in Bot Factory is precisely about the timing. Taking a substandard action so you can take the better action next turn. Making sure that you have the parts available that you need for the blueprint you have and that nobody else has the necessary blueprint. But by the same token, I was, uh, I was worried when you gave the rules explanation that it would be a lot of sniping. Well, worried was perhaps the wrong term. In point of fact, there was a lot less of that than I would have liked, 
because it was mostly a question of, again, in order to finish a robot, you needed the parts and you needed the blueprint. Very seldom was it the case that two people would be going after the same kind of ro robot at the same time. So it mostly just felt like we were just going around doing the same three different actions, because that's pretty much all you do, in sequence until we all just shovel out the robots. It was it was very much lacking in charm for me, despite how cute the robot meeples are. But of course, the robot meeples are nothing more than just tokens to indicate that you've completed a recipe. And you didn't even get to customize your robots. Like, why, why can't I just put a flamethrower on the back of the... <laughs> there was a little bit of conceptual confusion on my part and someone else's part at, at the game before we looked at all the blueprints. And went, wait, wait a minute, all the blue robots are exactly the same and all the red robots are exactly the same. It, that was that was purely on us. We were expecting the game to have a little bit wait more Wait for the expansion. I'm sure it'll have, like, the Warfare expansion. Oh, sure. And this isn't even a critique of Bot Factory. Like, it's just the pictures and the way there's all these parts involved, we assume that the parts might be interchangeable or customizable. No, it's just there are three different color. Each color needs part A, B, and C. That's it. The pictures are just window dressing, and you go off and you keep going until someone's built five robots. That's about it. And uh, I I thought it was largely procedural and mechanical, and it didn't really grab me. I, I prefer this. I prefer kind of soulless and straightforward to soulless and overwrought. It wasn't overwrought. Uh, so there's that. I did enjoy it. I thought there was a lot of combos going on. There was a lot of sort of trade-offs. It's like I'm going to maybe set up someone else for a robot because you, there was this economy of speech bubbles, which didn't make sense, but let's just pretend it is it is what it is. And so you had your own sort of static good, like sort of like a Hansa Taconica, good economy and bad economy. So you had to make sure you had enough so you could throw a couple robot parts, get those things, go over here, and that allowed you to get a, uh, robot part and then place it up and get more speech bubbles. I thought there's a lot there. I, it's for me, it's mostly about the worker placement and Sandra going around, getting in the way and, and clearing parts and just doing that whole sort of turn order mechanism, which I really enjoy. I do concede that the combos were pretty satisfying. So that was bot factory by Vidal Serta and Juan Quintela Martins. Just so. Finally, for me, you got to play The Wolves. This is by Ashwin Kamath and Clarence Simpson, published by Pandasaurus Games. Uh, first of all, let's just start with the scientific disappointment, because a lot of the game of The Wolves is about managing your normal wolves and your alpha wolves. It's almost all about the alpha wolves. They do the overwhelming majority of the actions in the game. Mostly your other wolves are there to be protected and or are just there for positioning purposes. And the very first thing you said when explaining the game, Walker, was that, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah, Huey had said something about, you know, there's no such thing as alpha wolves. And I said, I said oh. So it took me all of four seconds yeah. of, of internet searching to find out, oh, he's he's right. It is all a myth and yeah. doesn't actually exist. And if they had done that, just a minimal sort of, hey, we're going to make this game about wolves and have this main mechanism of alpha wolves, maybe we should, you know, research that a little bit. No, yeah. no we'll just... We'll do this. It, it is pretty disappointing, and it's not a minor detail of the game. It's a very central detail of, of the game, The Wolves. Uh, I wonder if there are alpha gibbons. Ooh. Because there are alpha apes, and gibbons are apes. We'll have to check out when we have our uh, our, our staff meeting next week. We'll, we'll ask <laughs> Ask one of them if they're the alpha? Yeah, yeah good yeah, point. Yeah. So, The Wolves, you compared it initially to Barony. There's just the just the movement part. There's like there's limitations of how you can move and and what can be in spaces. And I felt that was very barren, well. It's a, it's, it's a hex based game, uh, re relying on area majority with some aspect of positional abstracts. And I think that's a pretty good comparison. Uh, you know, okay. they're they are different games, but in the wolves, you're competing in 
area majority contests, yes, but you're also competing in trying to make sure that you can convert the wandering wolves to your own pack, to eating prey by surrounding them with enough of your own wolves, and a variety of other actions that are that are feel a little bit like positional abstracts. That having been said, I really liked the action selection mechanism, and that made me feel like I wasn't so much playing a positional abstract. And it really did encourage you to think about what you were doing on your turns. You have these five tiles at the start of the game. They're all featuring different types of terrain, and most of them, when you activate them, they flip. And so some actions require you need multiples of the same type of terrain. And frequently that number is two. And so you might be looking down at your board. It's like, okay, well, I've got two swamps. Can I do anything with swamps? No. But if I take this other action, it'll flip this desert to a mountain, and then I'll have two mountains, and so I can do something with that. And that part was great. I really loved loved the action selection mechanism. I didn't like how tactical it was. I I frequently felt that planning in advance of your turn was a little bit pointless. Uh, the, 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 The board state wasn't really moving so much. It was just that the downtime was significant. We played with five, which is probably not ideal. It's the maximum player count. I'd much prefer trying it again with three or four. And then I think maybe the strategic horizons might be a little bit more open. Now, that having been said, uh, Dewey did a very, very good job strategically because there are three scoring phases over the course of the game. And he pretty much ignored all the scoring until midway through the game. And he's like, okay, well, I've done enough uh, faffing about for my tastes. I'm now going to make a big push to make sure that I get the endgame scoring bonuses. And oh my goodness, he did. By the time that anyone else looked around to start competing for the endgame bonuses, he'd had them on lockdown, which was very impressive. I was thinking back, and the end, those those scoring phase, phases were very minimal when you compare them to the, the scores on your board. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, after the fact, I went, like, uh, maybe I shouldn't have concentrated on that so much. It's very much of a game of of completing things on your board on the way of yeah. maybe getting some little bit of airy majority here or there. Yeah, if you can do both at the same time, that's ideal. But if you can only choose to do one, ignore the area majority. That's absolutely true. I was having fun trying to find the intersection between the two. But you're right, where there's a disjunct, because uh, very much the opposite of Dewey, after the mid-game was done, and I looked over to see the end-game scoring conditions, and I'm not competing in any of those, I just completely ignore them, and I continued to score points at roughly the same rate, <laughs> because I was only focused on my board, and ignoring other aspects of, of board positioning. So, all of this having been said, it, it felt a little bit point salady, a little bit um, uh, situ- uh, positional abstract, but... Normally, I don't like point salad. Normally, I don't like positional abstracts, but put, them two, put the two together a little bit, and they kind of cancel each other out. So I thought it was cute. I thought it was engaging. The pieces were nice. The art was very nice. The production was crazy good. Yes. Because the information that were that was on your player board explained the whole game. It got to modify how many wolves you got to move, when you did a move action, how far they got to move. You howled to take over lone wolves or to take over opponents. Uh it was dominate, but you still had a, a howl range, so you could increase that as well. You're putting out dens, you're increasing them to like larger dens. Everything very interesting. I can't wait to play it again. Yeah, I was very impressed with the design chops. Uh, Ashwin Kamath, this is their first published design. Clarence Simpson has done a couple of other things. But you're right, the information presentation was top-notch. Visually, it was very good. And I enjoyed trying to figure out how to make use of my clever action selection mechanism. So I, I, I too was pleased with the game and look forward to playing the wolves again. Yeah, I was a little worried because of the buzz it was getting. It was very much uh, like a Cascadia buzz. I thought it was going to be. So I thought, yeah. it was, I thought it was going to be very light and and just not my thing. But I wanted to check it out to see what why people were talking about it. And there is a, a much more of a game there for sure. Absolutely. And I was reminded actually talking about Cascadia and how Wolves indeed graphically seems to be kind of sort of in that sort of tradition, although a little bit more cartoony 
than the the more realistic style of games like Cascadia or even National Parks in some sense. But we'd very much previously enjoyed by Pandasaurus, Gods of Dinosaurs. Gods of Dinosaurs was also a sort of a spatial puzzle involving using animal meeples moving around. And it too was a drafting game. And so as far uh, it too being compared to Cascadia and Parks as opposed to The Wolves, which is not a drafting game. So if you want a nature-themed drafting game, we recommend Gods of Dinosaurs. It's also theologically themed. It's true. Those are the games we played this week. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So, Mark, how about that Super Bowl? Wasn't that a whew, that was a Super Bowl nail biting right absolutely to the end. with with the the um, the with the feats and, yeah. the, and the balling yeah. yeah yeah it was all there yeah it's weird though it's like literally the first year that I have not even watched a down of football usually I watched a few a few games or mm-hmm. something not even watched a single down which was well even we've been watching lots of association football it's true I think it's mostly because I have subscribed to my my actual footy balls so I watch a lot more of yes. my my Premier League, then I do. You, you become a hipster European is what's happened. Uh, apparently. So, Scott Biel Masque is going to be publishing the board game version of Dead Cells. Now, I'm a big fan of the Dead Cells video game, and normally I wouldn't that wouldn't attract too too much attention, but the design team includes such people as Antoine Boza and Ludovic Moblin, two, uh, two designers that put out solid work. Antoine Boza is one of our favorite designers. And so I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what they do with it. It doesn't seem like an easy game to adapt. They say it's going to be a 45-minutes-ish experience where you're going to be fighting and looting and doing all the things that one does in a roguelite, but uh, I, I'm very curious. And it's a, it's a great pull. It's a great license for Scopion Masque, which is a, a Quebec publisher. So there you go. Nice. Usually I talk about things that interest me, but if you're looking forward to Puerto Rico, apparently uh, it's best to hold off, do a little bit of research. Apparently they're missing a ton of tokens and there's a bunch of misprints and it's just overall a mess. In the new edition of Puerto Rico 1897, yes. Just so. So Andromeda's Edge is on crowdfunding now. And I want to issue a minor correction or at least emendation to something I said in Pledge of Indifference when discussing Andromeda's Edge. And we commented that there was a strange uh, sequence of events where we complained at length about the combat system, among other things, in the previous uh, game to Andromeda's Edge, namely Dwellings of Eldervale, because Andromeda's Edge is dwellings in space. And Breaking Games, the publisher, uh, took serious umbrage to the effect that they started posting very, very long screeds and rent, uh, on private geek list comments. And then I commented that it was strange that Andromeda's Edge, the pseudo-sequel, seemed to be trying to address some of the criticisms that we had of, of the combat system. But it was pointed out by a listener that it's perhaps unfair to... Uh, present this sort of sequence of events because the publisher of Andromeda's Edge is Cardboard Alchemy and therefore has nothing really to do with Breaking Games. And so maybe Breaking Games is still convinced that Dwellings of Eldorale is perfect in every way. Not that we were taking credit for any of these changes, of course. Nobody really pays attention to what we say, but I just thought that it was an interesting development. And for what it's worth, Andromeda's Edge seems to be trying to make Dwellings into something that we might enjoy more. Who knows? So We'll find out. We'll find out. Andromeda's Edge is on crowdfunding now. 
So the fourth installment of Micro Macro is going to be coming out at the end of 2023. I didn't realize the maps fit together. Mark, the maps fit together. The maps fit together? Yes. Go to Board Game Geek right now, and they'll show you a poster-sized picture of the three that are available, and they and they make a overarching city. Oh, my goodness. So the fourth one will make a two-by-two two giant map. Can't wait. Micro Macro, fantastic Where's Waldo-type mystery-solving game. It will now be complete. <laughs> well, that's kind of sad. So Fun Again Games has been a consistent presence in the hobby for as long as I've been in the hobby. First, they were a retailer. Then they stopped retailing but continued to be a distributor. And now they're shutting down as a distributor. And the process of winding down their distribution, a number of games appear to be stuck in various forms of fulfillment woes. Now... They haven't stopped all their activity altogether. Indeed, the game we reviewed very recently, specifically Rolling Heights, was fulfilled by Fun Again in many localities. But there are a number of backers of games such as Station Fall, uh, Pre-Orders of Revive, Pre-Orders of Horseless Carriage, that are very much in limbo. And the communication from Fun Again Games has been, shall we say, spotty. And publishers are getting, shall we say, frustrated as our gamers. So... Keep your eyes on that. Hopefully they'll be able to fulfill all their obligations. I'm not saying that there's any evidence that they won't. All that I'm saying is that things are very much in abeyance and we are waiting. So I very much liked Jekyll versus Hyde. It was a two-player trick-taking game where one play player played Jekyll, the other played Hyde. And you either you tried to sway it, all losses are all wins. If you're Hyde, if you're Jekyll, you're trying to keep it nice and even in wins. Now they're coming out with a sequel. This is Jekyll and Hyde versus Scotland Yard. It's a two-player, but guess what? Now it's co-op, much like, you know, the Fox and the Forest series. They did a versus and then a co-op. Interesting. And I believe they brought a person on from from uh, the Fox and the Forest. So it's also being designed by Janil, the original designer, and some new designers as well. So I'm looking forward to trying that out. Sounds fascinating. Cooperative trick-taking games tend to be very interesting. Uh, finally, for me, this is episode 250, which is a multiple of five. We only talk about our Patreon in multiples of five. We have a Patreon. Our aforementioned Patreon exclusive show, Pledge of Indifference, is very popular. We talk about Kickstarters that is, uh, from a list curated by the very finest of gibbons. We have a whole bunch of other Patreon-exclusive content. We give away games. We have a Patreon-exclusive Discord with some great conversations. We've got a newsletter. Uh, go check us out on Patreon if yeah. you're curious about supporting the show. Mark does a ton of work, bloat, and like you said, the new lifestyle newsletter. Can't wait to read it. <laughs> and then finally for me, Mark, you know when you're, 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 one of your games that you enjoy has finally jumped the shark? <laughs> well, it's happened, Mark. It's G.I. Joe and the Transformers New Alliances. We well, <gasps> you know Renegade has, has, has done both the deck-building games, G.I. Joe and Transformers. Yes. Now. There's a set where you now are going to have Transformers in the G.I. Joe that ship World. sailed a long time ago. They, they there have been crossovers in the comics for a long, long time, sir. And then, and so you you've played the the deck building game, right? I have and played you know, GI Joe the deck you building can game. Send people in your in your. You can now send them vehicles. in Autobots. You can now send yes! them in Autobots, or I'm there. Or the or the the Transformers can go by themselves now because they're they're, they're of course they're their own vehicle. Look, Walker, right? so, Walker, you had your stated desire. To get all the toy versions of all the G.I. Joes. It's true. Right? Getting the toy versions of all the available vehicles would be very, very difficult and expensive. It's true. I can supply the necessary <laughs> Transformers. It's true. 
for that part of the set. Well, you know, dare I mean, you say that this is them jumping the shark? Oh, how, come dare, on. how dare you? How dare you? I will pick it up because I got to try it. So we'll see. G.I. Joe and Transformers New Alliances. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game, which is Autobahn. Autobahn was designed by Fabio Lopiano and Nestore Mangione. And Fabio Lopiano is a longtime designer, and if we have some interest, he published Kalamala, which is one of our favorite Euros. He then published Ragusa, which I found a little disappointing, and Merv, which I also found a little bit disappointing. More on that later. And Nestore Mangione, he's in the same circles as the Italian masters. He co-designed Newton. He co-designed the perpetually coming soon Darwin's Voyages. And he has been uh, engaged in a lot of collaborations of that ilk, but this is their first collaboration together. This was fulfilled by Alley Cat Games right around the beginning of 2023. And Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Autobahn? Well, in Autobahn, Mark, you're building these beautiful stretches of highway. Black, straight, slick, gorgeous highway. Slick. <laughs> for these, for the, for the tourists and and locals to drive on and then you decide oh i'm going to build this great you know service station so they can fill up their cars but you're gonna have to wait till your next turn and then lo and behold someone else builds a service station (laughs) a rotten stink fake gross (laughs) service station that's awful smells like a latrine (sighs) but that's fine. They ruined all your hard work, but that's okay. There's some bonus tokens. You'll build some road segments towards the bonus tokens, and you'll get those. But no, no, no. They they won't let you have that fun either. Now there's this <laughs> gross, dirty, muddy road there, and your bonus token's gone. Ugh. And, and that is Autobahn. Yeah, so that's it is, Autobahn. All right. So it's another game that has action selection paired with card play mixed with light deck building. So it's, you know, the same things we enjoy about Oak, but this is a very interesting sort of building a roadway and making deliveries type game. I I don't think deck building is strictly accurate. I think it'll give people the wrong idea. You can add additional action cards to your available supply. You don't really, it doesn't work like a deck builder. It's more like a a hand builder. It's it's close. It's closer to a hand builder. Uh, and even that's not necessarily accurate. I've described it in the past as Fabio Lopiano doing Alexander Fister because the, the central card play reminds me a lot of the way Fister does card actions. You have these different columns on your player board and each column corresponds to a different action. And there's a limit to the number of cards you can have in each column. Now, this you can upgrade those columns, of course, because what's a medium-heavy Euro game without the ability to upgrade this, that, and the other? And the cards with which you start can be upgraded because, again, you, you can upgrade this, that, and the other. And the color of the card is an additional restriction because whatever action you're doing, say you want to build a road, you have to make sure there's enough room and you're building a road column. And the card you play determines where you're building a road. And these are the two key restrictions in terms of what you're going to be doing. And, of course, the restrictions bite deeper at the start of the game because most of the Autobahn that's already been built is in the color black. And you've only got the one black card, and oh my goodness, you're going to regret playing it wherever you played it. (laughs) Yes, it's like, oh, I now have a service station in black, but I really needed that road. But now my, my black card is locked in my action. And it's, it's one of those great games where you get to choose when to pull back the card. So you can instantly pull, pull that black card in your hand, but that will be your whole action. But you get a dollar back because <laughs> you have one card. So that's uh, one strictly of the, speaking, a Deutsche Marke. A Deutsche Marke. Yes. Because that's one of the... Sorry, that's the, a tribute to Eddie Azard, who uh, in Dress to Kill, she referred to Deutsche Marks as Deutsche Marques, and it's just stuck in my head for some reason. <laughs> so that's one of the mechanisms is, is uh, you can pull back your cards at any time. 
and you'll get a Dorchimarki for all of the cards that are in your action line. But if you play your last card, then at the end of that turn, you get them all back for free, but you don't get the money, but you don't lose that turn of having to pull your cards back. Yeah, the intersection of tempo and money management uh, is not just limited there in Audubon, because every era, we'll talk about that a little bit later, you can spend an action to just go get money from the government. And what's fascinating is I find different players have to do that different amounts. There is income over the course of the game, both from service stations that you build and from mid-era scoring, where it just disgorges money and no points. But I, I do find it fascinating how some people are perpetually short of cash and some people perpetually flush. And the people who are perpetually flush are not necessarily the ones who are winning. It's an interesting aspect of, of money management that I think is, is keen, especially since... Your quote-unquote penalty for needing to go ask for money is just that you've wasted a turn, quote-unquote wasted. And so the tempo considerations, I love tempo considerations in games. The tempo considerations are absolutely here in Audubon, and money is just one of the ways that that's demonstrated. Yeah, and you need money to improve the roads. And I love, there's three different phases in the game. It's very sort of historically themed, where after World War II, they start building the Audubon, and then Mark knows more about the history, but in each of those three phases... The price fluctuates on how much it costs to build such roads. So you really need to understand how much money you're going to need and how to get it. Yes. Uh, Era 1 is roughly the end of the war until the Treaty of Rome. Era 2 is the Treaty of Rome until Germany reunification. And then Era 3 starts. And Era 3 is by far the most interesting because the Berlin Wall is down. And suddenly East Germany is open for business. (laughs) And so at the start of the game, a quarter of the map is just off limits. And indeed, one of the foreign destination delivery sites, Poland, is also off limits. And then Era 3, it opens up. So what you have is Era 1, a scrabble for for real estate, and you're desperately trying to get anything done because your cards are so bad and you're short in money. Era 2, it's not so much about real estate, but maximizing what's already there and preparing for Era 3. In Era 3, there's a new land rush, but now suddenly everyone is bonkers powerful because they've got, they typically have a fair amount of money and they have typically a lot better cards and the technology is better. And so I really feel that helps undercut one of the problems with Audubon, which is its length. Uh, Audubon is longer than I'd like to be. I thoroughly enjoy Audubon. I I, I, I don't stand up le- feeling like I've spent more time than I should, but it's two to two and a half hours, which is long. And I really do think that the length is undercut somewhat by how different the different eras feel. I really like the development of the different eras. It's great. Not only is it, his- it add-, add historicity, but it also adds to a sense of developing arc. Yeah, when these eras end, it's the best way... To get money, because there's this very interesting sort of mechanism where every time you improve a road or build a road, I guess it's because your family did that for Germany, you get to put someone in the office. And then at the end of the era, you get to add up what that certain link of that highway is, depending on if it's upgraded or how many, you know, sort of intersections it has. And then if you have representation in that road, you're going to get paid out money so it's a very dynamic way to get money absolutely and i can't tell whether this is the designers just doing a standard euro hand waving themelessness or if this is actually some kind of veiled criticism at german bureaucracy <laughs> because as you say the way you advance in the game of audubon is by advancing through the bureaucracy of the roads now There's this other interesting element of timing with respect to being on the boards, because each section of the Audubon has its own board, and you want to be sitting on the board for purposes of payouts at the end of the era. 
But the only way you can win is by promoting your executives past the board. And at that point, they cease generating you income, but now they're eligible for promotions. Promotions are pretty much the only way to get points. And one of the things that I very much appreciate about medium-heavy Euros, which you so seldom get to do, is you say, okay, well, here's the sprawling map. Here's all the ways you can play on the map. But the only way you get points is this right here. And then you just point to the sideboard and be like, this is it. This is all... Now, granted, that's a bit of an oversimplification because they're combinatorics. You get the promotions that then let all of your service stations be worth points or all of your uh, deliveries to be worth a certain number of points. Fine. But the fact that you that you can have such an overwhelming focus on getting those promotions in the first place and then once you start getting them, figuring out which ones are worth the most gives Autobahn a sense of focus that a lot of other games of similar weight don't have. Yeah, like I said, that's what I have here. Very clear goals so you know exactly where you're going to get points no hidden things at the end of the game and it and it's linked completely with this sort of i don't want to say technology but of course every year it's, yeah, game it's has basically technology, technology. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> as as you get these technologies they have three different levels and you have to reach those levels in order to go up on this bureaucracy chart so if you don't have the level three technology for that particular row you cannot go up to the high scoring points i love how it's interconnected and i really love how you can't get everything absolutely you 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 only have the what we call keys so you can only unlock certain numbers of technology there go you can only get on certain ranks in the bureaucracy absolutely this is where the thematic elements completely fall apart uh, I mean, you could tell some story about passing civil service exams, I guess, maybe certain... Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you cannot get certain promotions unless you've unlocked the technologies on your board that aren't really technologies, they're just these in-game bonuses. At this point, it's pure Euro mechanisms, no bones about it, they're not even trying to dress it up very well. And that that forced choice is something I absolutely adore. Far too often it's the case in a lot of Euro games of this ilk, you can do a little bit of everything and be fine, or even max out a lot of everything. In Autobahn, no matter the player count, and this is something I'd like to get back to later, no matter the player count, you are not going to be able to get all the technologies. And in turn, you're not going to be able to specialize in all the upgrade tracks, regardless of how many upgrades, uh, promotions rather, you actually get to do. And it's not like one of those things like some good good games do this, like Civ, or even some bad games do this, where you have to decide at the outset of the game where you're going to prioritize. No, no, no. You can wait and see how the game develops and do it on the fly. Just knowing, though, that those trade-offs you make are going to be painful and, in some cases, irrevocable. And that level of decision-making angst is something I very much appreciate. And at least in our in our in the games that we've played, they seem to have got the timing perfect. It's not as though at the end of the game, it's like you say, "Well, I've maxed everything out. I've got nothing else to yes. do." Yes, it almost coincides perfectly with the end of the game. It's like, okay, this last turn, I have just enough to get that the last promotion up to the end right. and finished. And I need to get that last key out so I can get that last promotion out. And it's a grind, a good grind yes. to get those last keys out because one of the actions you can do is put out a key, but you can only do that for the first five times. Those subsequent keys only happen at certain thresholds and they are tough to meet. Some of them relate to deliveries. We haven't even talked about the adorable trucks yet. More yes. on that in a moment. And some of them relate to the necessary track. There's one track that is more or less... Pretty much the trackiest of tracks, but it's fine. It's just one of them, and it's it's sufficiently central. And, 
And this all leads into the, the same trade-offs with your cards, because all of those keys that you need to get out correspond with the, the cards in your hand. So it's like, well, I, I need to get this yellow, or sorry, there's no yellow. I need to get this red key, but I really need this red card to either put a service station out or a road. Am I going to sacrifice it into the line this turn and then bring it back later? Do I have time to do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So good. So on top of all this, there are there's trucking, and again, this is again where more themelessness because we're simultaneously the bureaucrats who are running the Audubon, but we're also private industrialists building service stations as well as operating a trucking company on the Audubon. Whatever. So you have these adorable little lorry trucks that that build up, uh, put on these adorable screen printed little wooden containers. And you start making deliveries all over Europe when the Audubon is sufficiently well-connected that it connects to other countries. Now, if you're like me, this causes a fair degree of confusion because I do not recognize the flags of Europe. (laughs) But every country has something it really wants and a whole bunch of other goods that it's perfectly happy to receive, but it doesn't really care. And it's asymmetric boards. And it's asymmetric boards. And that is one of the areas where you're going to get, for example, that last key or that last promotion you need or that last eking out little bit of development. And again, you can start making these priorities right at the beginning of the game. It's like, okay, I'm going to make that difficult development and I'm going to do that really early on. Or you can save it for later when your technology is maybe a little bit more powerful and you have more service stations out. But at the at the end of the day, it's an additional geographic element on top of, of the fundamental road building that exploits the geographic card play and dynamism of the road network being built and expanded and improved that is just delightful. Yeah, and it, and it leads into what I enjoy about this game the most. And it's all about the timing and and getting the advantages that you want, very much of a scythe. Well, I can't do this action because I want to upgrade it first. So when I do that action, I get the, the bonus. And not only that, I have to get my, I want to have my truck on the road. So when I get the bonus for this, then he'll be on that color of road and then he'll move to this one. So then when I use that bonus yep. for the color road, now he's I on can't the do orange. action B because I need to do action uh, C first. And if I do action C first, well, I really want to do action D first. And well, I should do E before doing D, obviously. And then suddenly you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> and, then, and during all that, you're weaving in where your truck's going to be. So, yes. so it, because at the end of your turn, regardless of you just look at the color of the car that you played. And if your truck is on that color of road, you get to move it. So all of that timing is great. Yeah, and it hangs together really well because the fundamental card play is very simple and very straightforward. The fundamental actions are all very simple and very straightforward. It's just how they all hang together with the way you've improved your technologies, the way you're trying to score points, the way you're moving your truck, why are you moving your truck, where are you moving your truck, etc., etc. And it's one of those things where uh, frequently over, th- over the course of the past few games we've had, we've had to look over at the new players and say, embrace the inefficiency because they start getting paralyzed by the notion of, well, I, I, but if I do that, I forego this other stuff. It's like, well, yeah, you're going to have to do that. <laughs> Later on, you're going to be pulling off these amazingly efficient turns where everything just hangs together and the angels sing and everything's great. But during the early parts of the game, nope. <laughs> you got to you got to take that bullet. Yeah, because later on, you're going to have improved cards. You're going to have these bonus tokens. You're going to have all these things that are going to help you push you along to get these combos and exciting turns that you want to get. Yeah, and there are some reasonably satisfying combos. You know, I move my truck past my service station. That allows me to trigger this action, which allows it to get it a little bit further. So it finally gets into Belgium to deliver their car parts that they've always wanted. And now I'm going to trigger this other token, which cor- which dovetails off this improved action card that I played. Yeah, very satisfying again. And it emphasizes the way in which all these different elements come together. The other time where, time, where the timing is sometimes bad is, like I said, at the very beginning is... You can only build a service station if there's a road leading to it. So, And you only usually get to build one road at the beginning. So as soon as you build the road, that means anyone else can 
build the service station, as long as they have that card ready. So you could sort of look around the table or wait for everyone to play their black card or, or get your black card ready or yellow or whatever color and then get it. But usually someone else is going to take it and you'll just have to wait until it's your turn that somebody else builds a road that you can take advantage of that. And then later on, you're going to get cards that let you build a road and then the service station. So you can start making sure that you are going to get those things. It's, it's in the building of service stations. I think that you have to exercise the maximum degree of flexibility from game to game. I've played games where I've built one service station. I've played games where I built eight service stations. And honestly, I couldn't predict going into the game how many I was going to build. It was always a question of, well, what am I giving up in order to build it? What What is the other timing? Some people get very focused in the early game at building as many service stations as they can at the expense of all else. And I think that is a route to disappointment because, you, as you say, you, you are at the mercy of other players as to when the service station spots become available and whether or not you just happen to be sitting to their left when you are in a position to build. But I don't know if that's a strength or a weakness. I think it's a weakness, again, if you focus on wanting to do that at the exclusion of all else. If you're willing to be flexible and accept the fact, well, I guess this is not going to be a service station heavy game for me, then it's fine. But it's definitely the timing element, which is most at the mercy of strange turn order exogenies. So more timing is the ending of each era. So what's going to end each era is because there's a number of roads that are divvied out for each era. And when they're, when they disappear, that era is done. And whoever builds that last road also gets a big benefit, which is what we talked about the promotion. So that's also trying to figure out how you can be the one that gets that last road out. Stuff like that. Yeah. On occasion, there were threats of the game degenerating into a bit of a stalemate. And you don't want that to happen. You know, I was like, well, I don't want to build the second to last segment because then the person to my left gets to build the last segment and get the penny. But at the end of the day, in Audubon, you're always being pressured to do something. And so the cost of sitting on your hands is so high that you don't want to do that. Just treading water just so that you hope that somebody else will make the same mistake is not a good strategy to pursue. Although superficially, sometimes it looks like that might be a good idea. The other thing that happens at the end of era that's very cool is your root card. At the very beginning of the game, you've drafted a root card and you want to have, it's two cities and you want to have those two cities connected by roads because once you do, you're going to get money. You're going to get $10. Please. Sorry. Deutsche Marques. 10 Deutsche Marques during that phase. And if you start improving that stretch of road, i.e. upgrading the road, putting on service stations, you sort of, you count how many links in that that those improvements reduce that link. So you want to get a low number because then you start getting more benefits and those benefits include promotions, which what, like we said, are the buzz bomb. <laughs> it's a good short to medium term goal to have. I sometimes have been a little bit disappointed in the way that, you know, multiple players reuse the same stretch of road. Like not all of the destinations are entirely independent from each other. Like for example, there's one that relies on, the same segments on the white stretch of the Audubon. And so there's a lot of overlap. So two players just end up helping each other either intentionally or unintentionally. But that having been said, it is nonetheless a good goal to go for because other than that, you know, you might be in more in those situations, like I said, where there might be a stalemate. Well, I don't want to build that white link. Somebody can build the service station. Like, well, I'm going to need to build the white link anyway, because that's how my route's going to get connected. So I'll just do it. So it's in my interest anyway. Are we ready to turn the dial in the other direction yet? Sure. All right. So we've talked about having, uh, at the end of every era, you get a bunch of money for, uh, having 
people staffing the certain roads. And that's going to be based on how improved those roads are. So it's this upgrading these tokens on the map every time a road is built and remembering to do it and remembering what it is. And, and sometimes you forget or that's the wrong number. That's kind of fiddly. I initially disagreed with you because it's 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 a very simple formula. It's not like it's got a whole bunch of nested conditionals or strange counterfactuals or anything like that. It's very straightforward, but it is nonetheless the case that we have had to update the city values because they've been wrong on the board. And so you've persuaded me that it is a little bit fiddlier than it wants to be. Yeah, it's it's like it by itself is not a big deal, but it's the fact there's so much other things going on, it's a thing. Then the, the symbology is not great. That's true. Uh, there's lots of things that give you actions. There's lots of things that will let you do something else if you do an action. So is this thing giving you an action or is it giving you a benefit if you do the action? It's sometimes unclear. On top of that, the rulebook is not particularly great. That's going to come over. That's, that's coming next. That's coming next. I don't all, get to talk about it. All paper to. products in this game are terrible. <laughs> okay. Right? The rulebook is awful. Awful strong. All of the roads that you build are too small. The trucks don't fit on them. Yes, they need they, they need they to be a little bit long. And that's the, that's the weird thing. The board is big enough to have cardboard tokens of an appropriate length so that the trucks would fit on them neatly. And yet the cardboard links representing the actual roads are too short. It's very weird. So the advanced cards, not only in the rule book, you can't tell them apart. They have this little tiny star that's inside true. this little tiny symbol. That's true. So the advanced cards, the delivery counters are so small, you can barely even pick them up. They're awfully teeny, yes. Uh, the bonus counters, there's ones that say you get to change the color of a card that you played, but it can't be black or white, yet they have... Black or yellow. Black or yellow, yet they show yellow on the, on the bonus true. counters. It's true. So yes, all of... All of the things that are made of paper. <laughs> one thing, one thing that should be made of paper is the score pad that should have come with this game. <laughs> no score pad. I don't know. I'm I'm not pro score pad. I, I, uh, I tend not to use them as a rule, and the scoring is sufficiently focused and simple that I don't think it's a huge deal. I I just wish my my chief objection, honestly, is that the rulebook does a relatively bad job of acknowledging the fact that you're going to be doing multiple things in a given turn, and it buries the explanation of how that works in an appendix. And that that left me somewhat disappointed. And I mean, now, now in fairness, just to compare this to Fabio Lopiano's other works, uh, this is more akin to the level of complexity and uh, crunch that Nestore Mangione works in traditionally, like it's closer to the level of complexity of a, of a Newton or Darwin's Voyages. Fabio Lopiano's previously most complex game was Merv, which was not as complicated as, the, as Autobahn. And one of the problems with Merv that I had with it is that like, like every Fabio Lopiano game has a clever action selection mechanism. He comes up with very, very clever action selection mechanisms. In many ways, this is by far his most derivative of the action selection mechanisms, because again, it feels a lot like how Alexander Pfister would do things. That's not necessarily a slight, but derivative is often fine, especially in Euro design. But Merv felt like disconnected mini games that didn't really hang together. This Autobahn, on the other hand, is really, it's structured very, very well. And that is almost always one of my main critiques of medium-heavy Euro games, that, that the mechanisms don't hang together, they feel utterly disconnected. But honestly, uh, I think Autobahn hangs together very, very, very well. The fact that it all relates to this map of Germany, where you're either moving trucks or making roads or whatever, and all interfaces with the Autobahn network, uh, makes it a coherent, relatively focused scoring experience. And... 
I don't know whether the the difficulty in the rulebook is a consequence of the fact that this is Fabio Lopiano, you know, upping his game in terms of complexity. I don't know whether to blame Alley Cat Games. I don't know who wrote it. But long and the short of it is that I agree with you. The rulebook is substandard. I don't know if I would go so far as to say all paper products no, are. No, no. It's, it's just the fact that all almost all of the negatives I, all seem to be the cardboard paper. I will add one more knit to that pile, though. The key tokens at various times are in one of three different places. And wherever they are, they don't really fit. <laughs> None of the places where keys go, they feel like they belong. Another, another quick thing. I have to go all the way back and where we're talking about how it's slight uh, card hand manipulation. And the fact that when you upgrade a card, you can upgrade any of the cards, either in your hand or on the board. Yes. And you can go right out of a color. Like yes. It's like, okay, well, white's pretty well built up, or I don't care anything about the white road. So you, you throw away your white card and get another color, and then you no longer can influence uh i am okay with euro games letting you make mistakes right like if you compare splatter games to a lot of other euro games in, in many euro games it's very difficult to make mistakes that really really hamper you you can be suboptimal you can be inefficient but actual mistakes mm, seldom i appreciate the fact that this is one area where you can like i really want that card i really should upgrade my existing color but no i want two of that color i'm gonna take that hit Okay, goodbye, Red. And then suddenly you're looking down at Era 2 being like, oh, I'd really like to build in Red. <laughs> or I've accidentally moved my truck under Red. Now what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, so I, as I say, I kind of appreciate the fact. Now, when you're playing with newer players, don't let someone do that without being conscious of the consequences, right? Make sure that they're cognizant of what they're giving up. But it should be pretty transparent by then what they're actually giving up if they're willing to abandon their their a, a card of a given color. All right, so... This was on Kickstarter, and the Kickstarter has three little mini expansions I'm looking forward to trying out, delivering some wine or traffic jams or what was the last one? Oh, improving your, improving your service, service stations. stations. Yeah, we haven't tried any of them yet. It's a sufficiently meaty game that we haven't really felt the need to add in more bits at, at the moment. And quite frankly, uh, I'm I'm curious about how well they'll hang together because, as I say, one of the things that I like about Autobahn is that unlike a lot of its peers, it hangs together really well. So Autobahn is a 22 release, 2022. And so where do you think it would land on your 2022 list, Mark, now that we've played it? Okay, well, question. Is it really a 22 release? How many people got their hands on it in 2022? No. Which, I, which, which markets got I meant officially. <laughs> like on Board Game Geek, it, says, it claims that it's a 2022 release. I hear that. I'm questioning <laughs> whether that is accurate. It's true. <laughs> uh, in, I, Europe, in Europe, they all got theirs. It's just the North American c copies that came so late. Oh, okay. Well, then, yeah, it's a 2020 release. No problem. Yes, it definitely would have made my top 10. I don't know exactly where. I agree. Definitely my top three. Love this game. Oh, top three. That's high yeah, price, yeah. Definitely keeping it. Just the, de like, the delivery trucks are it's just super fun yes. delivering all these different things across. Once the the Berlin Wall opens up, it, it opens up this yellow track, which opens up pharmaceuticals, and now you're 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 trying to madly deliver these pharmaceuticals because they give you promotions. There are limited bonus counters in all of the cities when you deliver to them. All sorts of interesting things. How how you, the bonuses for delivering work. Love it all, Autobahn. It's got a lot of the great things that you want out of a medium heavy Euro game. You know, tense trade offs, timing issues, economic management. Uh, managing some interesting action selection elements. Uh, 
arbitrary Euro tech advancement, stuff like that. And it's definitely better themes than your average medium-heavy Euro game. It's definitely more integrated than your average medium-heavy Euro game. And Audubon definitely has more clear scoring than your average medium-heavy Euro game. I wish it were about 30 minutes shorter. It's a little bit longer than I'd like it to be. But that having been said, it doesn't wear out its welcome. And uh, I, like you, I'm very, very enchanted with Audubon. I think this is Fabio Lopiano's best design since Kalamala. And I uh, I think this definitely put him back on my radar for designers to look out for. And also, after Nestori Mangione has done Darwin's Journey, the perpetually coming soon Darwin's Journey, and this, he's definitely, I think, uh, elevating himself in, in, in my esteem of the uh, it- Italian game designers. And that is Audubon. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We are on many of the social medias. We're on Patreon. We're on YouTube. We're on many different things. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in. We appreciate your having decided to spend the time with us, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.